In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. I have a mirror. <laughs> what do you see, Stacy? I see me. You see you. How about you, William? I see the most beautifully crafted wood frame. <laughs> There's always one in every, in every gathering, right? How about you, Josh? I see me. Yeah, and people around you maybe too? Yes. Yeah, um, pretty basic, huh? <laughs> you look into a mirror and you see you, assuming that the mirror is lined up with you. Now, you can also angle it and see other people, like Chase sees Tyler and Cell's yeah. waving at someone. And <laughs> um, Here's the truth about mirrors. They, they seem simple, but there's a profound theological truth going on here. And we just read, actually, we just heard from 2 Corinthians 3.18, that we are beholding the glory of the Lord. And the Greek literally means reflecting or mirroring the glory of the Lord. And in doing that, we are being transformed into the same glory from one degree to another. That means gradually, little by little. So here's what mirrors do. A mirror receives an image, and then it reflects that image back. It receives an image. Now, you don't have to know. You don't have to look into the mirror. You could be looking away from this, Tim, and yet it's still receiving your image and reflecting that image back. And whether you see it or not, Randy sees it. Someone else might see it. So a mirror is actually what our hearts are like. We direct them toward God. Then our hearts are going to receive the image of God and then reflect the image of God out into the world. This is what we read in Exodus 34 that happened with Moses. When he spoke with God face to face, Moses was a mirror receiving the image of God. And then as he came down the mountain, it said his face glowed. He was then also reflecting the image that he received. You understand? And so when the disciples see Christ on the mountain of transfiguration, he's receiving the glory of God, which of course he is, but he has been sort of hiding that glory from them. But then we see it reflected in Christ to the disciples. These are tales, Moses specifically, and then Christ shows us that this is what we are meant to become. The transfiguration of Christ isn't something that just happened a while ago to him because he's the son of God. This is him showing us if we continue to follow him, this is our destiny. And it's no accident that this is in the very middle of the Bible. And in fact, in Matthew's gospel, Christ is transfigured. I'm sorry, not the middle of the Bible, the middle of the gospel, I mean. Christ is transfigured on the second of three mountains that feature prominently in Matthew's gospel. The first mountain is when he climbs up the mountain and delivers the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount. And he says, this is where you are to go to follow me. This is how, this is what it looks like to follow me. The second mountain says, it's the Mount of Transfiguration. It says, if you abide by my words, you will look like this. And then the third mountain is when he's risen and he gathers his disciples and says, now go therefore into all the nations, discipling them and teaching the things which I have commanded in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And that third mountain is where we now become reflectors of the glory when we receive that image on the Mount of Transfiguration. So we have this progression. It's not an accident, therefore, that it's there. Paul tells us clearly in 2 Corinthians 3, this is our job, is to behold the glory of the Lord 
like Christ reveals it on the Mount of Transfiguration, and then to reflect that glory. And as we do, the more that we receive the image of God and reflect it, the more that we turn our hearts to him and behold him, the more that we will receive that glory and reflect that glory. It's incremental, okay? It gets clearer and clearer in our lives as the surface of our mirrors of our souls get wiped cleaner and cleaner. However, this principle applies all over life. I can alternatively direct my life toward ugliness and sin and creation and worldliness and just simply reflect that or receive those images. And then I, what happens next? If I'm a mirror, I receive those images and I reflect those images back out. So to put this in a very different wording, we become what we behold. As mirrors, we simply become what we behold And we want to be in a place where we are constantly beholding Christ so that we can receive his image and reflect his image out to the world. How do we do this? The very basics that we've been taught at the youngest of ages in Christianity is when we pray, we are posturing ourselves as a mirror before God, receiving and reflecting his glory. When we open scripture, This should also be an invitation for us to posture ourselves as mirrors before God. Now, here's the next truth we discover when we do this. That as we do so, we find that God is also beholding us. And that he's receiving us into himself. And he's reflecting us back to ourselves that we actually see who we really are in God. Sin lies and tells you what you should be and it's not what you should be. But then when we pray and we're in scripture, we also see who we're supposed to be. We see ourselves transfigured in the glory of God. And that teaches us how to live. So this is now, now let's just jump. These are simple concepts. We're just trying to make these connections. So, So one more word is communion. That's what communion is. God beholds me and I behold God. We mirror. The mirrors are facing each other. And now you've ever put two mirrors together. You can create an infinite effect, can't you? In the reflection. Isn't that cool? We are communing with infinity. So you just let that picture stay with you for a while and live that out. But um, what we're going to do is now we're going to look at Matthew 2 and the way that he uh, uses scripture. Because I think we have a lot to learn from the way the Bible uses the Bible. So Matthew 2, beginning in chapter 1, actually, we have Mary receiving Christ Uh, who takes on her flesh to make his body. And this is done through the Holy Spirit. And then Joseph is is concerned about what's happening. He's told in a dream, this is okay, it's of God. And then Matthew says, this is to fulfill Isaiah 7, verse 14, that the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. Okay, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. Then in chapter 2, this is stuff we've covered, so we're going to summarize a little bit of it. Um, the, The Magi come, and they say, where is he who's been born king of the Jews? And Herod is like, say what? And so he calls the scribes and the Pharisees, this is in verse 5, he's in verse 4, assembling the chief priests and the scribes of the people, Herod inquired of them. So the chief priests are, they're your religious leaders, they're doing all the worship and stuff that's happening in the temple. And the scribes are those who write down copies of scripture so that people can have the scriptures. So they know it really well, because they're constantly in it. These are the experts. So he asked them, where is the Christ to be born? In verse 5 they say, Oh, that's an easy one. It's in Bethlehem. 
of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and this is Micah 5, verse 2. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who shall shepherd my people Israel. And then Herod, of course, uh, the, the, the Magi, I mean, go and worship Christ, and they're warned to go back home a different way. Then in verse 13, an angel warns Joseph, Herod is outraged, he's going to kill Christ, he's going to kill Jesus, the child, so you need to take him to Egypt. And then Matthew sees in this something from Hosea, chapter 11, verse 1, and he cites it in verse 15. So Joseph remained there, Joseph, Mary, and Jesus remained in Egypt until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet Hosea 11, out of Egypt I called my son. Okay, now there's a fourth time Matthew uses the Bible to describe what's happening. And this is after Herod in verse 16 realizes he's been tricked by the Magi. So he kills all the children of Bethlehem. And then Matthew sees in this something from Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 15. This is in verse seven, Matthew 2, verse 17. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. And then a fifth time he cites the Bible. And this is when they come out of Egypt, marry Joseph and Jesus and go live in Nazareth. And we read in verse 23. And he went he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, that which was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. He shall be called a Nazarene. Now, there's actually no verse in the prophets that says that. Matthew seems to be gathering the summation. They said various things, and this is basically what they're saying. Now, I can explain that in a moment. And then there's more in Matthew, but we'll go one more because it's in the neighborhood. Matthew chapter 3, verse 3 about John the Baptist. This is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, Isaiah 40 verse 3, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord and make his paths straight. So six times in just these few verses, Matthew is explaining the Jesus story with the Bible. He's saying, this happened to fulfill what this part of the Bible said over here. So Matthew reads the Bible, but clearly he can just pull these passages, which the average Christians were like, uh, what is in, Jer- in, in Jeremiah 31? I don't know. And I don't even see how this verse applies to what's happening here. Matthew knows all these passages and he can just grab the passages and say, this is fulfilling this and this is fulfilling that. So one, Matthew knows the Bible, right? He reads the Bible. But second, what's impressive is as you look at some of these verses he's citing, you don't necessarily see right away, oh yeah, totally this was predicting the coming of Christ. Like, unless Matthew had cited it this way, you probably would never have read these Old Testament passages as fulfillments of Christ. And so scholars look at this and they're like, well, we're not really sure how Matthew's doing this. And some people say Matthew's too casual with scripture. And others, it's just kind of this discussion out there. It's like, because there's no clear-cut way that Matthew's doing this unless you just go back to the basics and say this. The early Christians read the scriptures with a single goal, not to get smart, not to nitpick 
what did the author intend here? And who really wrote Isaiah? And what was the date? Like, this is not how they read scripture. They read scripture to see Christ. That's it. So when Matthew's reading Jeremiah, yes, he's maybe going, oh yeah, that's right. This is during the time when Babylon's going to besiege Judea. And Jeremiah's trying to remind the kings, like, don't surrender to the Egyptians. Don't look to them for help. Surrender to Babylon. Give up because this is God's will. Like, oh yeah, okay, this is what's happening. Right? Okay, of course. He kind of knows that a little bit. But what Matthew's actually doing when he reads Jeremiah is he's looking for Christ. He wants to see the image of the Son of God, the Word in the Word. He wants to see what all of it, Jesus told us, that the law and the prophets and the writings all spoke about him. The early Christians read the scriptures to see Jesus. Now, that's not necessarily to say that they opened the Bible and said, where's Waldo? (laughs) And started like making these really, really clever interpretations. Sometimes it seems like that. But they took in reasonable ways, oh, this is like Christ, or this is literally predicting him. So, for example, Matthew chapter 1, verse 23, is where he cites Isaiah 7, verse 14. Now, Some people are like, okay, there's lots of like commentary discussion on why is he quoting Isaiah 7, 14 and yada, yada. And is Isaiah really saying that one day there's going to be a virgin who gives birth to a child? And was he really foreseeing Jesus? Like what's going on there? It doesn't really matter because at the end of the day, Matthew's reading this and sees a picture of Christ. And here's what he's seeing. King Ahaz, king of Judah knows that their rivals, Israel, the brothers to the north, are teaming up with Syria to come and beat them up. And Ahaz is ripping his hair out. He doesn't know if he should, like, take loot from the temple and sell it off to to make them go away, which would not be a good move, worship-wise. He doesn't know if he should just adopt their gods, say, okay, we're on your team. That's sometimes what kings would do. Um, He doesn't know what to do. So the prophet Isaiah says, ask God for a sign. He's with you. Ask him for a sign. He's like, I'm not going to ask God for a sign. I'll figure this out on my own. And Isaiah's like, fine. God's going to give you a sign anyways. The virgin shall conceive and bear a son. That's the sign. And when this child is old enough to tell his left hand from his right, these enemies you fear are going to be gone. Like the fear you're living in right now is so temporary that a child is going to grow up in a few years and they're going to be dead in a few years. So what Matthew does is he sees in the birth of Christ that child who is promised to tell us who live in fear of the world that the enemies we see and we're wondering how we deal with them and this opposition and these things going on, what do we do? He says Christ is the answer that all of that is now going to fall and it's temporary. So the situation Ahaz is in The world is in, and Christ is the answer. He's that child who, before he can tell his left from his right, all of it's going to be done away with. That's what Isaiah, that's what, that's what Matthew sees in Christ's birth. When he cites Micah chapter 5 verse 2, back in uh, Matthew 2 verse 6, um, it's actually the scribes and Pharisees who are citing it, but Matthew includes it because there's a very important message here. If you read Micah chapter 4, right before this verse, Micah is talking about, look, Israel, you're going to go into exile. It's going to be ugly. Things are going to be destroyed. You're going to be lost and dead and dark. 
And then the very next few verses start to say, but God is going to do a new work. He's going to bring you back. He's going to restore you. He's going to rebuild you. And then he drops Micah 5, 2. And Bethlehem, there will be a king born who will shepherd the people. This is how the exile will end. Their destruction will be rebuilt because a king will be born in Judea. So what Matthew sees here is, okay, okay. This is actually literally a fulfillment of Christ. So that was an easy like layup for him, right? Um, but, but it's more than just, oh, the Bible said Christ would be born in Bethlehem. It's, it's what's going to happen when he's born in Bethlehem. He's going to rebuild a home for the exiles of God. Those who have been kicked out of Eden are going to find a home again in Christ. And then when he cites Hosea 11, down in Matthew 2, verse 15, out of Egypt I called my son. This is the one where scholars like, think that Matthew has no idea what he's doing and he's abusing the Bible. Because what it's actually saying in Hosea 11 is out of Egypt I called my son, his son is Israel. And out of their slavery in Egypt, I called my son. I led them out in Exodus and brought them to a promised land. But, and I, I, I do say this with reverence because some of these scholars are far smarter than me and they've earned their degrees, but sometimes I think they forget what Christianity is for. So I will say, those silly scholars forget to read Hosea 11 in its context. Hosea 11 is talking about, Israel, listen to me. You're idolatrous and you're going away from me. Do you remember that out of Egypt I called you as my son? Do you remember that I raised you up and taught you how to live? And then you went and did your own thing. And then it's, you guys have to read all these chapters on your own time. You've got to get the context of them. Um, but here's, this is such a beautiful passage in Hosea 11. He then starts to say, so you walked away from me. And then he says, there's going to be judgment because you walked away from me. You walked away from your protection. But then he raises this question. It's Hosea 11 verse 8. But how can I give you up, O Ephraim? And how can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like these other places that are going to be destroyed? My heart recoils within me and my compassion grows warm and tender. You're going to be destroyed because you walked away from me. But how can I let that happen permanently? I am hurt over what's going to happen. So then the next verses say that God will roar like a lion and those that were scattered across the world will come home to him. So when Matthew says that Christ was brought out of Egypt into Nazareth to fulfill Hosea 11, he's not doing a really poor reading of scripture there. What he's saying is, as God delivered his people from the, in the Exodus, Christ is the new Moses, and he's leading a new Exodus, and he's leading us out of our punishment for our sins. He's leading us out of our misery, and he's taking us to a new promised land. We're getting a heightened vision of Christ here in these quotations that Matthew's giving us. Then in Jeremiah, when he quotes Jeremiah 31 in verse 18, a voice was heard in Ramah, loud weeping and lamentation. Jeremiah 31 is one of the chapters that you should just have, like, your Bible should fall open to this Old Testament-wise. It's one of just the huge chapters in the Old Testament. And what happens in Jeremiah 31 is that 
Jeremiah falls into a dream. He gets this dream vision, and he wakes up in the middle of it. He says, I woke up from my dream. My sleep was pleasant. And God's saying, look, I'm going to bring you back home. Yep, you're going into exile, and it's going to be ugly, but I will bring you home. And there's this one dark verse in that chapter, and it's the one Matthew's quoting. Of all the beautiful verses in Jeremiah 31, he quotes the ugliest verse to to relates this ugly situation of all the children of Bethlehem being massacred, he says, this is what was happening to Israel in the exile. Ramah was the place, it was very near Bethlehem, where the Babylonians were taking people out of Jerusalem, and before they shipped them off to Babylon, Ramah was the station. It was like the first concentration camp, if you will, before they get shipped off to um, to Babylon. And so Ramah was a place of weeping. And Rachel, who was buried very near Bethlehem in Ramah, she's in her grave turning over with sorrow because of what's happening to her children. That's what Jeremiah is saying. It's going to be brutal. But after that verse, he then says, but singing and rejoicing will be heard in Jerusalem again. And then, you know what happens next? Jeremiah 31, verse 31. This should be imprinted in your Christian heart. Jeremiah talks about the new covenant. He says, look, I brought you to Mount Sinai like a bride and I made a covenant with you. You broke that covenant. You divorced me as your husband, God says to them. But the days are coming when I will make a new covenant with my people. Not like the old one, but a new one in which everyone, I'm summarizing here, like the law will be written on our hearts because no one will anymore have to tell you, straighten up and this is how you be a good little godly person. But no, the spirit of God is going to live inside his people and the new covenant. And their sins will be cleansed and there will be no remembrance of them anymore. Matthew knows, because when Christ raises the bread and the cup at the last supper, he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. What Matthew's saying is this is a dark moment. But we have to remember that this is happening because Christ is now going to lead us from that dark moment in Jeremiah 31 to the new covenant. Again, it's a new exodus. And like Israel met with God at Mount Sinai, we're going to meet with God in Christ, our new Mount Sinai. And he's going to lead us into a new relationship with God where we have him inside of us and our sins are remembered no more. This is how Matthew reads the scriptures and sees Christ in all kinds of places. There are patterns and stories, and Christ is the climax of these patterns and stories. Um, that last one in chapter 2, in verse 23, uh, that the what the prophet said, he shall be called a Nazarene. There is no verse um, that says that. But Nazareth was such a little town. It's basically like Blue Jay. Right? Like, do we even think of Blue Jay as a... No one says I live in Blue Jay, do they? Do you have you... Do, does anybody say that? But it actually has its own zip code. Right? Blue Jay has its own zip code. Uh, but nobody lives in Blue Jay. We drive through Blue Jay. We might stop in Blue Jay if you're hungry or need to go to Jensen's and overpay because you don't want to drive further. Um, like, that's all Blue Jay is there for. Um... Nazareth is like that. They say the at, the population at this time was probably like 250 people. It is not even on the map. So to say that the Messiah came from Nazareth is really to say that he's a nobody. And this is what Matthew's saying, is that he went to Nazareth so that he, the prophets will say he might be called a Nazarene. What this is probably is a proverbial phrase. 
Oh, you Nazarene, meaning you're just a nobody. So the prophets, did they say that the Messiah would be a nobody? Yeah, they did actually in a few places. Most memorably is Isaiah chapter 53. Um, People will not even, they will see him as very common. No one's going to really recognize him as anything special. This is what Matthew's doing is he reads the Bible and realizes the Messiah is going to be someone just like us, not like this glorious, like muscle rippling hair, flowing Rambo coming on like a, like a bullet loaded horse and just saying, come on, Rome, come on. Like, this is not the Messiah that's coming. The prophets are telling us he's going to be like us and he's going to live with the lowest of us. And so Matthew is seeing Christ in all of scripture. And then lastly, Isaiah um, 40 verse 3, which he cites about John the Baptist in chapter 3. Well, Isaiah 40 is another one of those great chapters that just need to be in the Christian heart and imagination. It's um, in Isaiah 40, basically it starts right before saying a voice crying out in the wilderness. Isaiah says, comfort, comfort my people, for you have paid double for your sins. So what Isaiah had done in the verse 39 chapters is basically accuse the people you guys deserve what's coming. You are so bad. And then in chapter 40, he changes the tone dramatically. Instead of saying judgment's coming, he says, comfort is coming. Because you've paid double for your sins. In other words, Isaiah says, when the exile is said and done, Israel will have paid for more than they deserve. Their punishment was greater than they earned. Because the tools like the Babylonians God used to punish them went beyond what God permitted. That's what it's saying. So God is going to bring this great redemption and restoration. And that's where the voice in the wilderness cries out, prepare the way for our God. And Isaiah uh, is being quoted here by Matthew to say, this is happening now in Christ. Our sins are done with. There's no more punishment for them. Comfort has come in this person Matthew's reading the Bible to see Christ, and he's reading creatively. Um, Well, I don't actually have time to get into that, so you can ask me later. (laughs) He's reading the Bible to see Christ. So to Matthew, the Bible leads him to Christ. He sees Christ in Hosea. He sees Christ in Jeremiah and Isaiah and in random little corners of the prophets. So you can say the prophets generally say this. He sees Christ in the Bible. Now, Contrast that to what we just read in chapter 2, verse 5, when the scribes and the Pharisees say, oh, we know where the Christ is to be born, Bethlehem and Judea, because we just know this off the top of our heads, like Micah 5, 2 said, and they can just recite it to them. But then when you hear them say that, we see in verse 7, nothing about the scribes and chief priests. They do nothing with this knowledge. Instead, Herod takes over and says, okay, well, you go and figure this out, and then you tell me so I can annihilate him. We see nothing about scripture leading Herod, the chief priests, or the scribes to Christ. They don't read the Bible to find Christ. They are not posturing themselves as mirrors before God when they open scripture. They're mirroring themselves when they open scripture. And I fear dearly that there's a tendency for us to open the Bible to find ourselves in it. To turn the Bible into a book of moralism. A book that's motivational speaking. Something that's just going to kind of charge your willpower for the day. And then you're going to run out of it until you get to your next Bible verse fix. 
So we need apps that tell us the verse of the day because we don't know what else to do without that. Nothing wrong if you read the verse of the day. It's great to have that in your heart. But that's not the only aim to scripture. We need to read the Bible in a way that we're not just looking at this and saying, cool, I know God now because I know what Jeremiah 31 is. Brandon, help me now. I know God so much better. And Isaiah 40, I know those, those are, he said, those are key. I know God now. That's not how early Christians read the Bible. What they did is they believed, and I believe, and I think we need to believe, that God is not known through rational knowledge. God is known through participatory knowledge. In other words, it's not knowledge that I can just transfer with words in a lecture into your mind, and now you know God better. It's knowledge that you have to actually enter into and communicate with and work with. It's as you participate in the life of God, you begin to understand and know what the life of God is. This is why the Trinity is really hard for Christians to teach. It's not meant to be taught. Do you understand that? The Trinity is meant to be caught as you gaze upon God and God gazes upon you and you're pulled into his life. You experience through prayer and scripture In a growing way, you participate in the life of father-loving son and son-loving father and father-loving spirit and spirit-loving father and spirit-loving son and son-loving spirit. We experience the energy and the glory and the love and the eternal life that's emanating from them to each other as they receive this from each other and give back to each other. And when we get caught up in the midst of this, this is something that we don't just say, oh, Diana explained this with a four-leaf clover. I get it now or three-leaf clover, whatever they do with it. I get it now. I steam water. I get it now. No, 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 no. We get it because we feel we've participated in a love that transcends what we experience on a human level. This is participatory knowledge, and this is how Matthew reads the Bible. This is how Matthew doesn't, he's not just being cute and going, oh, this happened to Christ, let's find a verse. And and if he had Google, it would have been much easier. He would have been like, "Uh, verses about wilderness and Egypt and being called a Nazarene. And he's, oh, there's, there's the top three. We'll insert these in my story. Not at all. He know these scriptures are part of who he is so that when he sees Christ, he sees the Bible being relived, but now fulfilled. This is participatory knowledge. So scribes cannot know God for you. So these are the experts of scripture, the people that write books, the people that have their degrees. They can't know God for us. They can't determine truth for us. They may help and there are great tools, but they're not going to be your window into God. This must be participation. Priests cannot know God for us. And unfortunately, I fear that people treat pastors, and I hope not me, but it might happen because I'm just that position. People want the pastor to know God for us, that they go into the sanctified realms that none of us mortals can go to, as if we're not mortals or something, and we bring the jewels to you for you. That's not how this works. 
I must enter into participatory knowledge. I'm not just learning about God from scribes so then the priest can tell you about God. Like, that's not how this should work. I participate in the love of God. And then I invite you and urge you on to go participate in the love of God. Scribes can't know him for us. Priests can't know him for us. And the church cannot know God for us. Just being here and just saying, because I'm associated with Calvary Chapel Twin Peaks, the greatest church on this mountain. <laughs> I'll just throw that out there in bias. Um, because I'm associated with them, like because Chase is there and Chase is amazing or, or Christina's there and she's so holy, I'm, I'm associated. So now I've got these benefits. It doesn't work that way, friends. We must have personal participatory fellowship with the triune God. So we sit before scripture and we pray as mirrors directed toward the glory of God so that we receive and reflect. And then in the process, we realize he's doing the same to us. And this is where we begin to participate in the love of God. So what we need, brothers and sisters, is we need to reclaim spiritual reading, not just scientific reading. We are trained to read the Bible scientifically because this is what the outsiders do. They come to us with these scientific questions. And I, when I say science, don't limit to what I'm saying to evolution and study of the nature and all that stuff. I mean questions that ask things in such a way that all we have to do is probe the right questions and research enough with the right answers and we can answer these things. This is not how we're meant to use the Bible. Here, let me contrast this for you a little bit. Scientific reading versus spiritual reading. A scientific reading is where we examine stuff and we say, hmm, let's microscope this and look at this word and blah, blah, blah. Spiritual reading is when we let the word examine us. It takes the microscope to us and says, oh, let's see how you're doing with this, Brandon. Scientific reading is when we take a text and we read it. Spiritual reading is when we pick up a text and it reads us. Scientific reading is when we take up something and we say, I want to master this subject. I want to be a master on revelation so that I can be the answer guy and connect all the events of the world to things in this book. Or spiritual reading says, I want to pick up revelation and let revelation master me. Let revelation tell me who I am in this time uh, and like what Christ wants me to do in this time. Or better yet, the, 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 the subject is God himself and he masters us. Scientific reading is when we are doing all the questioning, but spiritual reading is when we stop doing the questioning and we let the scriptures question us. Now you can start with, why did Matthew quote this dude over here? But at some point, we have to let that observation start to question us. Wait, maybe I don't understand how to read the Bible. Maybe I'm not as awesome as I think. Maybe I don't have all the answers. Scientific reading reads words, but spiritual reading listens to the voice that spoke the words. It's listening for the voice of those words. The scribes were scientific readers of the Bible. 
They had it executed to perfection. They, you raise a question, they had the answer. We know a lot of Christians who are scientific experts on the Bible. There's nothing wrong with being good and knowledgeable about the Bible. There's nothing wrong with having scientific knowledge of the Bible. But if we don't learn how to read the Bible spiritually, we will not let it lead us to Christ. Scientific reading alone did not lead the scribes and the priests to Christ. And I fear dreadfully that our church, and our, I just mean like the, the grand church, and hopefully, hopefully we're not in this boat, or hopefully we won't be after tonight. We have allowed ourselves to reduce the Bible to something to study, master, and use to prove to other people that God is real. We've stopped letting the Bible be a gateway into participatory knowledge of our creator. And this will transform us. So the Bible needs to be read prayerfully, is what we're saying. That we come to the scriptures in the midst of our prayer setting. We've been praying for whatever time you give yourself to pray, and you're reading the Bible in the midst of your prayer. This will change the tone of how you see the scriptures. Okay? We don't if you do, stop just sitting down with your feet crossed and, and your feet up maybe, and a cup of coffee as you read scripture. Now, there's a time to just read scripture. I'm fine with that. But don't think that you're entering into prayerful reading if this is how we're reading. We're reading it in the middle of our intercessions, in the middle of our thanksgivings and confessions, maybe alongside the Psalms, so that we're reading prayerfully. We need a revolution in accurate, I shouldn't say accurate, uh, improper Bible reading in America. We need to stop using this and start submitting. Not just, well, the Bible says I shouldn't have sex, so I want sex. Like, not that. By for marriage, I mean. Um, not that kind of submitting, but submitting ourselves to its investigation on, am I actually reflecting the image of Christ in the world around me? Or do I just think I am because I know what that means? So here's how we can read prayerfully, spiritually. Some of you I'm sure do this or have heard this. It's nothing new. It's in fact very ancient what I'm about to share. It's just some people are talking about it like it's new because we need to hear it like it's new. We need to practice this like we've never done it before. The way to read the Bible spiritually, there's um, basically what you do is you take however much passage you're going to read. And this is, by the way, why our Bible reading plan of just reading the Gospels at your pace, finishing by a certain date, is helpful because... Some people work better with larger and some people work better with smaller passages. But you take your passage and you read it a few times. You read it a few times and each time you read it, you're looking to go another step with it. So here's what it looks like. First, you take the Bible and you read with a listening heart. You read with a listening heart. So I don't read trying to manipulate the definitions of things and trying to recall all this stuff about it. It does help to have knowledge, right? And that, that's a good thing to get in a different context. But we read with the listening heart, letting the words just say something. So you're open, you're listening, um, you're not probing it with questions, you're letting it question you, you're just totally opening with, I don't know how else to explain it, but you're like, you're reading in such a way where you're trying to hear if it's saying anything. 
then after you read it with a listening heart, you read it to reflect on what it might be saying to you. So you're reading with reflection now. Um, something in your listening might have grabbed you. And now you're going to read it reflecting upon that specific thing. I'll give you guys an example in a moment. Um, you then work over it, right? You read it with that, with that, maybe that word, that phrase, that, that image in the story. And then you read over again with that focus and you just chew on this. Why is this sticking out to me? Or why is this just something that I just noticed for the first time? Like, why is this here? You sit with it. Imagine like when you have really, really, there's hamburgers, right? And then there's like hamburgers, like those places, like I'll pay 12 bucks for that. Um, not Blue Jay Burger, right? Not like that. It's a little overpriced, but okay. Sorry. It's not bad. It's just overpriced. Um, but you get a good burger, right? And uh, it's like the more you chew it, the more you're getting out of it. There's more, there's more flavors and dynamics. Like, oh, there's the bacon. Or, oh, there's the 50% bacon, 50% beef. Like, the more as you taste it. Oh, this time I got the sauce in there. That was a great fig jam that they put on that. Um, no marketing promotions here. I'm not going to say anything. Um, so, like, you're just experiencing this, right? Um, this is the way it should be as we read scriptures. The more we chew on this specific part, the more that's going to come out of it. And then something that comes out of it, it should be specific to your life. Because God is a God who's speaking through the scriptures to us to lead us to Christ. So it's not just like, you should be more loving. That is so vague. Duh, be more loving. Go home and just kick that home, okay? Like, that should be in your pocket all the time. But no, something comes out of the text where it's like, I should be more loving to Jack. Because something in this story reminded you of Jack. And God's telling you, look, you are not being kind to Jack. And this is starting to happen as you're reflecting on something that stuck out in this passage. So that leads you to the third reading. And the third reading is now you're going to discuss this with God. Like, oh my goodness, Lord, I have not loved Jack. I've been holding this grudge against him. I've been avoiding his pain because I can't stand that three years ago he tweeted something. No one uses Twitter in the normal world, right? Uh, only celebrities. So he Facebooked something about me, right? right? It's like suddenly this emerges and like, God... I confess this. I'm sorry. Show me how to make this up, like how to apologize to him next time I see him. This leads naturally to prayer over the text. And then the fourth time, you read it one more time, having all this unburdened before God, letting him in on your life and to do something about it, you read it and just rest. You read it and then you stop and you rest in God's presence. You've communed with him. Sit with that feeling. Let that go with you into your day. And what you actually find out is happening is you turned your heart to God like a mirror, received him, but now you notice for the first time that he was looking at you all along and you were in his mirror. And now you just sit. God is gazing at me and I'm gazing at him. You are communing. You're Moses face to face with your maker and we read, we prayed Psalm 97 earlier, right? And it said that the mountains melt like wax before the face of the Lord. But Moses didn't melt like wax before the face of the Lord. He shone like the glory of the Lord. The mountains are strong and sturdy. They're meant to be the foundations of the world in biblical poetry. When they melt before the face of the Lord, it shows that he is terrifying in his glory. <clears throat> Yet when humans look, because of Christ becoming a human, when we look at his face, we don't melt 
and become nothing. We recognize he's always been looking lovingly and longingly at us. And when we finally notice that is when we finally start looking back. Sit in that and enjoy that. This is how scripture leads us to Christ. You get to commune in oneness with him. So if you will allow me, can we briefly do an example of what this could look like? In a math, no one's saying yes, so maybe we should just end. Let's go. Let's go. Okay. All right. All right. Pull teeth out. I will, but let's go. This won't take long. It's a short passage. Matthew 20, verse 29. You probably should be at this point by now since Lent starts on Wednesday and we start Mark, but you know, just saying. Um, (laughs) If you need a, you know, don't, don't race through the Bible. Okay. It's not a race, but do pick up Mark on Wednesday. Just drop Matthew wherever you are and pick up Mark because we should be reading together. Uh, Matthew 20, verse 29. As they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him. And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent. But they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And stopping, Jesus called them and said, what do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus in pity touched their eyes and immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. This is a great example passage because so much can stick out to you, even just in that one reading. For some people, they will notice, wow, Jesus is asking, like for this morning, maybe like this time you're reading it for the first time, it felt like Jesus asked you that question personally. What do you want me to do for you, William? And then you sit. So phase two is you're going to reflect on this. What do I want Jesus to do for me? Have I been avoiding him? Have I been too afraid to ask? Oh, my goodness. I just realized I have been turning to this solution instead of asking Christ to open my eyes in this situation. See how, see what's happening here. Now you start talking to God about this. That's step three. And then step four is just, just sit in his presence for a little longer. Like that's one way, right? Um, personally for me, when I, when I um, was praying through this passage, it was the great crowd following Jesus that stuck out to me. That it opens up with this, there's this great procession of people following Jesus. And there's these two people on the outside of this scenario. But at the end, they join this procession. And it just hit me because I felt like it awakened my heart to this deep feeling I've had for a while. Like I feel like I'm missing something. I feel like I'm on the outside of life watching it happen to everybody else. And this is where then in prayer, it's like I began to see specific I'll spare you details, but you begin to see specific areas where this is happening and where you started to feel this way. And then this just led naturally of like just communing with my Lord and helping me in these areas. And I found that my prayer was exactly what these guys' prayer was. Give me eyes to see, fix my blindness, because I am so stuck on watching your work in other people's lives that I don't see what you're doing in my life. So open my eyes that I can realize I am in this procession too. I am following you too. You see how that works? Like This is how we read scripture spiritually. Now, in the back of my mind, was it there that why does Mark name him blind Bartimaeus and there's only one guy and Matthew has two blind guys? Like, is that a question that might come up? Yes. But is that the job right now when you read spiritually? Not at all. Lay those things to rest. 
and let the presence of Christ draw you into him through scripture. This is what scripture's for. It's how Matthew read it. It's how the early Christians read it. Scripture leads us to Christ. And if we're willing to read scripture in this way, it will transform us from scribes to saints. I'll say that one more time because my son had great timing. <laughs> Reading scripture in this way will transform us from scribes to saints. Amen, Amen indeed. Amen. Glory to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, now and ever and unto ages of ages. Amen.